This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. When people think about Reformed theology, they often first think about the doctrines of grace that God has from eternity, unconditionally elected in Christ, sinners to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. In recent years, however, there has been increased attention given to another aspect of the doctrine of salvation. That is, the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. Some writers have even suggested that the doctrine of union with Christ is so important that it eclipses the others or renders irrelevant some important questions that have long been considered most important in Christian theology. Into this discussion steps John Fesco with a new volume on the history of the doctrine of union with Christ. John is academic dean and professor of systematic and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's the author of a number of books, including a volume on the doctrine of justification, which you can find at the bookstore at wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's good to be here with you. Well, you've written a book the title of which is Beyond Calvin, Union with Christ and Justification in Early Modern Reformed Theology, 1517 to 1700. As we said in the intro, it's available in the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. Well, let's cover the basics here, and then we'll dive into this topic. What do you mean when you say union with Christ? This is a phrase that a lot of people are using and have been using with more frequency in recent decades, there's been more emphasis on it, but it's not always clear what everyone means by it. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, there's a lot of language in the New Testament as well as, you know, in broader portions of Scripture, but especially in the Pauline epistles that talks about uh, the believer in his or her salvation being united to Christ through faith, and that this occurs with use of the language of in him, in Christ. Paul and other writers in the New Testament illustrated in a various number of ways. You find it in the Gospels, for example when Christ talks about that he is the vine and we are the branches. The Apostle Paul talks about it in terms of the marriage union that exists between a husband and wife being a foreshadow of the relationship between Christ and the church. There are other images that we could appeal to, but it's the overall idea that when a believer is uh, united to Christ by faith, that Christ indwells him through the Holy Spirit, and the believer receives all of the benefits that Christ secures on his behalf, which at least in theological discussions chiefly focuses upon, but is not limited to, justification and sanctification. And as you noted, within recent years, there has been a lot of discussion about union with Christ, and so I wanted to continue to build upon work that I had done earlier in my own studies on the doctrine of justification by uh, using a lot of the historical research that I had dug up, as well as augmenting it and adding to it so that I could study the doctrine in a more in-depth manner, historically speaking. Aren't there different aspects to union? For example, I can imagine someone saying, well, Christ was acting for us in his obedience Mm -hmm. and in his death, and yet he did that before I believed in him. And so there's a sense in which we have some union with him even before we believe Mm -hmm. in him. And then I can imagine someone saying that, according to Paul in Ephesians 1, and I think you alluded to this already, we were elect in Mm -hmm. Christ, Mm -hmm. and that happened before I believed. Mm -hmm. And 
are those aspects of union, and how do all these things relate? Sure. It's fair to say that union with Christ encompasses the whole of our redemption from eternity past to eternity future, and that, as you said, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Paul, for example, in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and following, says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In John chapter 15, Jesus talks about, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. Here, ultimately, Jesus is talking about sanctification, so that our sanctification is rooted in our union with Christ. And ultimately, in terms of our glorification, this is where we are completely and totally united to Christ by means of our glorification. But as you also said, there are a number of temporal distinctions here that we would want to include, say, that theologians will talk about the predestinarian union. They will talk about the representative union that Christ represented us in his person and work. And this is, of course, prior to our existence for most of us and prior to our act of believing. But then, and there are a number of varying terms that theologians will call it, but they'll say that then there's the mystical union or the indwelling of the believer by Christ through the Spirit, so that there are many different aspects to our union with Christ. So it's important that when you do discuss union, it's important to designate, well, what aspect are we talking about and how do these various parts relate to the whole? Because if we're not clear about what we're talking about exactly, then when people are discussing union, it can be very confusing. Well, Mm -hmm. I think all Reformed people agree that we're in Christ from Mm -hmm. all eternity, or at least most, Mm -hmm. depending on Mm -hmm. how you want to order the Mm -hmm. decree logically, and we Mm -hmm. won't get into that here. (laughs) (laughs) That's another episode altogether. But assuming that most of us are infralapsarian, Mm -hmm. that'll send the listener to the pause button and scurrying to a theological (laughs) dictionary. And then... So we all agree that, most of us anyway, that we're in Christ from all eternity, according to the infralapsarian scheme, Mm -hmm. and we're in Christ as he represented us as our federal head acting on Mm -hmm. our behalf. So the question that is under discussion, particularly in our time, is the question of mystical union, as, Mm -hmm. as sometimes it's put. It's sometimes also described as existential Union. That's another mm-hmm. of the uh, labels mm-hmm. that's used. Then that gets me to the uh, title of the book, Beyond Calvin. And then mm-hmm. I, I take it the subtitle is Union with Christ, etc. Mm-hmm. What do you mean if we're talking now about that third aspect of union, of mystical union or existential union, the personal, actual union of the believer in time and space and history with Christ? How does that relate to your title, Beyond Calvin? Why that title? Mm-hmm. I think that for whatever reason, and perhaps there are a number of historical reasons that we could identify behind it, but in terms of contemporary discussion of the doctrine of union with Christ, or more specifically the mystical union or existential union of the believer to Christ, the discussion has largely been shaped by Book 3 of the Institutes, and in particular, not even necessarily the entirety of Book 3, but rather several isolated passages out of Book 3, so that it has in many ways become the norm or the standard for supposedly how contemporary Reformed theology is supposed to formulate their understanding of union with Christ. And in particular, it's not necessarily even what Calvin has said on these particular issues, but in some cases how 
particular individuals have read Calvin and using that, again, as the standard or norm by which everything else is measured. So that in terms of the title, when I say that when we talk about beyond Calvin, it's the idea that in recognizing that the Reformed tradition has no one theological lodestar, and that as important as Calvin is, and as helpful as he is, and as insightful and as brilliant as he is, there are a host of other Reformed theologians within the tradition that have contributed to this doctrine, as well as to its shape and as to its expression, so that, more generally speaking, we would say that ultimately the Scriptures are our lodestar, but that the tradition, particularly as it's encapsulated in our Reformed confessions, whether it's the three forms of unity or the Westminster Standards, or more broadly, say, the Second Helvetic Confession written by Heinrich Bullinger and other confessional documents— Those are the documents that help us to understand what it is that we're discussing when we talk about union with Christ. So I think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, I wanted to title it Beyond Calvin, because the discussion was so myopically focused upon Calvin. And I want to say, well, what else have other theologians, other Reformed theologians said on the subject so that it would illuminate us, it would give us a broader information and show that there's not a monolithic expression of this particular doctrine. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster. Seminary, California. When was it that Calvin became, for many people, the be-all and Mm end-all of Reformed theology? That's a good question. You know, I think historically speaking, we might be able to point to Karl Barth and Barth's desire to try to show that his own version of Reformed theology was indebted primarily to Calvin. And perhaps if we also connect that with, say, the Calvin Translation Society's activities in the 19th century— of bringing a lot of Calvin's works, particularly his commentaries and his tracts and treatises and other works, into English translation, in contrast to leaving the works of many other Reformed theologians, perhaps dormant is a way we could say, just leaving them dormant in the theological dirt, if you will. So with those two factors, I think people naturally gravitate towards what is available as well as to who has notoriety or who has the greatest profile. But one of the things that I tell theological students is that I think that our estimation of Calvin might change were we to be able to read Latin and were we to read from a wide variety of sources from the period. Case in point is that as frequently as Calvin is cited these days, he's rather infrequently cited in his own day, and that Calvin's notoriety and profile has increased in stature I don't know what type of number I would apply to it, but you might want to say tenfold in terms of in comparison to the 16th and 17th centuries. He is cited, but not nearly as frequently as you find other theologians cited as well. Perhaps I think one of the theologians that I find cited more frequently than Calvin, even among Reformed theologians, is Luther. In the period in which Lutheran orthodoxy was being formulated, Mm -hmm. it wasn't uncommon for Luther's works— sometimes the entire corpus of his works, Mm -hmm. to be assigned as a standard of orthodoxy Mm -hmm. so that theologians were asked to subscribe and say, do you agree with Mm -hmm. everything that Luther wrote, Mm -hmm. regardless of the fact that Luther didn't always agree with everything that he wrote (laughs) (laughs) and that there was significant development in Luther's lifetime. I think you make the point in the book Mm -hmm. that Calvin has never played that role, had that function in Reformed theology. 
That's correct. Yeah, I think that Calvin, or the, even the term Calvinism, was used initially as a term of derision or a term to somehow marginalize various Reformed theologians as being somewhat sectarian. You know, you have a number of Reformed theologians from the period saying, no, we're not indebted to Calvin. Again, you just don't find him cited that frequently. This is not to say that he wasn't influential. I mean, he undoubtedly was. He was certainly one of the key players. But on the other hand, there were a number of other key players that were involved. Say, for example, Heinrich Bullinger with the Second Helvetic Confession. You have Peter Martyr Vermigli, for example, who was the instructor to Zacharias Ursinus, or that's one of the relationships that he built. And then Zacharias Ursinus writes the Heidelberg Catechism. And Zacharias Ursinus is then a theological professor, if memory serves me correctly, to Franciscus Gomarus, one of the chief controversialists against Jacob Arminius, as well as Gomarus was one of the uh, delegates to the Synod of Dort. Other examples would be that you have John Davenant, who was an English Reformed theologian, who was a member of the British delegation to the of Dort, and he is, I think, I don't know how else to characterize it, but to say that he is amazingly influential during his period. And in fact, one of the things that I try to point out, and this is something that I've discovered, that I almost want to say that there's a reformed dark ages, and this is not to say that darkness descended upon it, but from the contemporary standpoint, there is a whole swath of theologians from roughly 1560 to about 1630 or 1640 that nobody knows hardly anything about. We hop typically from Calvin to Westminster, then to the present day, and we just hop over about a hundred years of development that just people know little to nothing about. And it's this period that you find so many of the Westminster divines, for example, citing repeatedly from theologians from this period. So that's, uh, you know, one of the greatest desires on my part is to try to move us beyond Calvin for the sake of discussion to say, hey, what else is out there and what else can we learn from the broader tradition? One of the key terms that comes up again and again in this discussion and that you discuss at some length in the volume mm -hmm. is a Latin expression, ordo salutis. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not something that the listener mm -hmm. necessarily mm -hmm. uses uh, every morning, nor will the listener hear it on the radio in the drive into work today. Mm -hmm. But it's mm -hmm. a really important term. Mm -hmm. Define it for us and tell us why it's important, and then tell us how you understand the Ordo Salutis. Sure. The Ordo Salutis, or as it would be translated in English, the order of salvation, is basically the logical ordering of the various benefits of redemption. And so that would include election in Christ, uh, as earlier theologians call it, vocation or effectual calling, faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. And the entire order of salvation would be undergirded in one way or another by the doctrine of union with Christ so that the Ordo Salutis gives expression to or manifests our union with Christ, say, for example, as you see in question 69 of the larger catechism. But the question then arises as to where does the order of salvation come from? It's really taken a beating, to say the least, in uh, contemporary theological discussion. Say, for example, Herman Ritterboss, you know, the well-known Reformed biblical theologian who said that the Ordo Salutis was nothing but pure anthropology, and that it was— What does that mean? Meaning that it's just a man-centered way of looking at redemption virtually to the exclusion of anything re in reference to God. And uh, you also have other theologians claiming that the Ordo Salutis was largely, I don't know if invented is the right word, but it was invented, say, in the 18th century by Lutherans. Reformed theologians later picked it up. And so if we return, say, to Calvin, to a more pristine expression of Reformed theology, one that is not encumbered by the Ordo Salutis, then this is 
is the, the more pristine expression that we have to return to. Is it the case that it was a Lutheran theologian who coined the term ordo salutis? Is that true? Yeah, I think so. I mean, historically speaking, yes, the term ordo salutis gets technical definition, I think, probably from um, 18th century Lutherans. But the question is, more specifically, is was the substance of the doctrine, or we can state it this way, a sequential explanation of the benefits of redemption foreign to Reformed theology? And the answer is, is it's not at all foreign to Reformed theology. And in particular, Though the term ordo salutis may not be used explicitly, though the term does appear in a number of places in 16th century Reformed authors, say, for example, Jerome Zanke and Peter Martyr Vermigli, but it's the question of what else do they call it? And there's this quote that I dug up from a 17th century Quaker theologian, of all things, and he says, you know, the ordo salutis or the order of salvation, or as it is otherwise known as the golden chain, which all of a sudden brings in a whole a series of, of texts, but most notably Romans chapter 8 verse 30, which is this golden chain of salvation, where you find Reformed theologians regularly referring to this as the order of the redemption, you know, and the order of benefits. And let me note that it's not a temporal ordering. So many people criticize the order of salvation or the order salutis as a temporal ordering, that first we receive faith, tick-tock, 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 then we're justified. Okay, let me wait around for a few more minutes, and now my sanctification begins. I can't say that I have uh, read exhaustively in terms of every single theologian from the period, but I have yet to find in reading hundreds of sources from the 16th and 17th century, I've yet to find a single theologian who will explain it as a temporal doling out of redemption. Rather, they're always talking about it in terms of theological distinctions, or they'll talk about it in terms of logical distinctions. They'll talk about it in terms of causes, not understood in a very kind of crass understanding of causality where one cue ball will hit the eight ball, say, on a billiards table, but rather just in a way to talk about the relationship between the different benefits of our union with Christ. And so from that vantage point, the order of salvation, or the golden chain as it's more popularly known, is a regular feature within early modern or 16th and 17th century Reformed theology. So what do we do with the suggestion that we should get rid of it? Should we get rid of it? Is it possible in Reformed theology, to get rid of the Ordo Salutis? Yeah, I don't think so, for two reasons. At least first, scripturally, I think it's there in the scriptures. You know, you see it in a number of places. Say, for example, where Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, in order to um, see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Or the question is, is why does Paul talk about the benefits of redemption in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, in the order that he does? Was he indifferent to that order? That would be the first observation that I would make, is that scripturally speaking, it's there. And in particular, it's there vis-a-vis how Paul and others in the scriptures establish the relationship between justification and sanctification, in that our justification— is not based upon our sanctification or our own good works, and the good works being but one part of our overall sanctification. And so, in some sense, and we can define that later on, but in some sense, justification precedes sanctification. But I think broadly, from a historical standpoint, it's absolutely necessary for the following reason, and I think that this is something that a lot of people don't grasp. It's this, that Reformed theology does not have a corner on the market on the doctrine of union with Christ. You know, in digging up in the primary source material, Roman Catholicism embraces union with Christ. Arminians believe in union with Christ. 
Socinians, which were 17th century open theists, if you want to put it that way, for a quick uh, access to the ideas. 17th century Socinians in the Rakovian Catechism, their chief catechism, they believe in union with Christ. Lutherans believe in union with Christ. Uh, in a word, I think it's difficult to find anybody who would disagree with union with Christ. And so the next question then becomes is, is then, well, how does our understanding of union with Christ differ from all of these other variant versions of union with Christ? For example, Arminius believes in the twofold benefits of justification and sanctification. And arguably, you can read his disputations on the subject, and he has a very prominent place to union with Christ. You would think that you were reading Calvin at certain points because of how closely he seems to be echoing Calvin's views. But on the other hand, when Arminius says you can lose your justification, you can lose your salvation, then quite obviously he's got a very different understanding of his doctrine of union with Christ than your average garden variety reform view. And Calvin. And Calvin to boot, yes, absolutely, yeah. So, so vital, and that I think is one of the functions that historically speaking, from a historical theological point of view, that reform theologians made with the order of salvation or this sequential understanding of this unbreakable goal I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 480 8474 Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Now, just to be clear, when you say order, order of salvation, you're not talking in chronological, temporal terms. You're mm-hmm. talking in logical terms. So let's put this as plainly as we can. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I've wondered if we shouldn't say, for example, relative to union, mm-hmm. it's the justified mm-hmm. who have mystical or existential mm-hmm. union with Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, there are others who are saying, no, you have, by virtue of regeneration, mm-hmm. if, if I'm getting it correct, an existential mystical union that manifests itself mm-hmm. in justification and sanctification as absolutely parallel mm-hmm. dual benefits. Is, mm-hmm. is that a correct contrast? Yeah, I think so. You're you're absolutely correct. So historically, in your investigation, what did you find to be the pattern? Did you find Reformed theologians typically saying that we're existentially or mystically united to Christ by virtue of our regeneration, Mm -hmm. or did you find them typically saying that we are effectually called, regenerated, given faith, and through faith, mystically and existentially united to Christ? Yeah, in one sense, it all depends on who you're talking to. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to put the book out there is because, uh, in many ways, the tradition defies a neat taxonomy. Because, for example, you have Jerome Zanke, who his reform credentials far surpass most people today. And Zanke argues that regeneration is a distinct act of the Holy Spirit, and that first the Spirit regenerates us, 
but it's only then in faith that someone is then united to Christ. So how common was that view? I don't know, but at least you find it in Zanke. And Zanke has a lengthy and pervasive even discussion of union Mm -hmm. in some of his works, so that it wouldn't be, I think, too much, and others have done this, to describe Zanke as a theologian Mm -hmm. of union with Christ. Yeah, I think all things considered, he puts Calvin to shame in terms of the kind of emphasis that he gives to union with Christ. Zanke, for example, wrote a confession that was supposed to supersede the uh, Second Helvetic Confession, and it never took off because he died shortly after penning it, as often the case with many of these works of these theologians. They die before they can continue and work on. But, you know, there's a whole chapter that opens up his understanding of soteriology there that begins with union with Christ. So that's one formulation you find. On the other hand, in earlier formulation, say, for example, in Luther, which in my opinion, when you read Luther's 1535 Galatians commentary, I think that supposedly so many of the brilliant insights that Calvin has, you find 20 to 25 years earlier in Luther in 1535. And in particular, Luther doesn't really dole out the differences between regeneration and faith, but he'll simply say that when a believer exercises faith, that there in faith Christ is present. And you could say that Luther's imprecise form formulations are as a result of the fact that he's a first-generation reformer. With Calvin, who's a second-generation reformer, you get some greater precision. But then as you move on to the third and fourth generations, you get some incredibly nuanced and very deliberate and I don't know if I want to say dicey is the right word, but some very precise discussions of how union with Christ all works together so that one of the elements that I think that many discussions today completely ignore— is the whole question of the pactum salutis, or the covenant of redemption, the agreement between the Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity past to bring about the redemption of God's people. And that the discussion is all focused on the application of redemption, whereas when you read in these sources, say whether it's Turretin, John Owen, Herman Vitzius, and others, they're all discussing it. They eventually always come back to eternity or How does the doctrine of election relate to union with Christ? And when you get into those discussions, especially as it pertains to the decree, and in particular the decree to impute Christ's active and passive obedience to the believer, that's where you find, I think, the prominence or the logical prioritization of justification over sanctification. Those are elements that I think should be brought out. There's so many things here that I want to discuss. (laughs) And One of the more interesting things that you discuss in the book is Mm -hmm. an episode in England that's not Mm -hmm. widely known. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It actually is connected with Herman Vitius. He wrote a treatise to try to sort out some very thorny issues in England. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have received a set of categories, and you reproduce a table in the book in Mm -hmm. which people are categorized as antinomians— Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you had a category for neonomians or which mm-hmm. head you used. Talk mm-hmm. about that for a minute. Uh, what was the issue and what did Witsius say and, and how do you understand that controversy? Briefly, because as you said, it's a pretty complex debate. You had a reputed antinomian by the name of 
of Tobias Crisp, who wrote a book called Christ Alone Exalted. And it was originally published right around the time of the Westminster Assembly. And in fact, there was even a complaint written to the Westminster Assembly about this book. Well, uh, a number of years went by, and then in the 1690s, you had this same book republished. And there were a group of uh, Presbyterians and independents meeting together at a place called Pinner's Hall. And it was a place where they would gather together to listen to various lectures. And one of the lecturers was Richard Baxter. And this was in the very last few days of his life. And Richard Baxter found out about the republication of Crisp's work. And he launched... I don't know if you want to call it a shock and awe kind of academic attack upon this book. And in particular, he was very critical of the people there in Pinner's Hall who had appended their names to the preface of the book to say, hey, this is a book worthy of consideration. And so we were off to the races, so to speak. And not only Baxter, but a number of others on what you might call the so-called neonomian side, because Baxter, I think, certainly was a neonomian. In other words, he ultimately incorporated the believer's works in justification. And I, okay, and I want to stop you there, because for <laughs> a lot of people, they only know Baxter through mm-hmm. the Reformed pastor. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. widely read mm-hmm. and uh, often commended, mm-hmm. and it's certainly a valuable work in many sure. respects. And yet you just said mm-hmm. that Richard Baxter— Mm-hmm. did not really agree with the Protestant Reformation on the doctrine of justification. Correct. So I want you to say that again, because <laughs> that could be a shock for the listener. Yeah, he held to basically a, a threefold doctrine of justification, that you're initially justified by faith, but then at the final judgment, you are judged according to your works. And so, yeah, he rejected that as well as— For, for acceptance with God. For acceptance with God, yeah, so that your justified state is not— actually secured until the judgment according to your works at the final judgment. According to Baxter, when Paul said, having therefore been justified, Baxter understood that to mean having therefore been justified for the time being. Correct. All right. For the time being. And so Baxter and other so-called neonomians engaged on this issue, and then a number of so-called, and I say so-called because the neonomians thought that if you didn't agree with them— and say that the believer's works were somehow necessary for your justification, that you were an antinomian, that you didn't believe that the moral law was in any way binding upon believers once they were in Christ. Do you agree with the neonomians? Well, in terms of, no, well, no, <laughs> in that sense that, no, our good works are not requisite for our justification. And you get this in terms of the debate as they, you know, press these issues that good works are necessary for salvation so long as you clarify that by saying that as a consequence of our justification or as a consequence of our sanctification. And you get a number of well-known theologians from the period, John Flavel, for example, and he contributed to this debate. Robert Trail, who has a little book published by Banner of Truth called Justification Vindicated. You also had Herman Vitzius, who entered into this debate with a little work, and it's little known, but it's called Irenical Animadversions. And um, this one is, you can find it on Google Books for free and uh, download it. And it's where he attempted to try to sort out the different views. And as you said earlier, in the course of this debate, he untangles and discusses all sorts of things related to justification, sanctification, as well as union with Christ, as well as the decree in terms of the pactum salutis or the covenant of redemption. And so, and what you find in this particular work, as well as in works surrounding this whole debate, 
is an amazing proliferation of fine-tooth distinctions in order to discuss these things, whether you're talking about the um, union of the decree, union of the incarnation, union of federal union, mystical union, and then on top of that you find distinctions in terms of active justification, passive justification. So all of these things is to show that the discussion has become quite complex, but these are all distinctions that few, if any, really pay attention to, and few, if any, are reading the literature of this period. And so this is one of the reasons why I wanted to say, let's get beyond Calvin and and look at what some of these great theologians have said, and hopefully they can help us in our own expression of this doctrine, you know, in our own formulation. You're listening to Office Hours hours. from Westminster Seminary, California. If the listener is aware of some of these discussions, it's often repeated that people like Saltmarsh, and CRISP mm-hmm. were antinomians. Mm-hmm. And it's just said, well, they were antinomians, and mm-hmm. anyone who knows anything about that period of Reformed theology mm-hmm. knows that. And yet, I think I heard you use the expression so-called mm-hmm. antinomians. Mm-hmm. And I don't want you to give away too much from the book, <laughs> but to give the reader some incentive mm-hmm. to look at the book for himself or herself, mm-hmm. can you talk briefly about why you use the expression so-called? Because that might be a bit of a surprise for some folks. The way that I describe it these days is that we operate with bumper sticker theology, you know, take a label, slap it on somebody, and then move on. Whereas these discussions in the 17th century were very nuanced, very technical, and very in-depth. So that, for example, with Crisp, who supposedly, as you said, is just a supposed open and shut case that he was an antinomian, he believed that believers were to be sanctified, and they were not supposed to conduct themselves in any kind of sinful way. Let's try to find a baseline Mm -hmm. definition for antinomian. Mm -hmm. Would you agree that anyone who denies that the moral law is the abiding moral norm for the Christian, Mm -hmm. that is the Ten Commandments, essentially, or the moral law is summarized by our Lord, love the Lord your God with all your faculties and your neighbor as yourself. If someone denies that Mm -hmm. as the abiding norm for the Christian, that person is an antinomian. I think, yeah, sure. Stated that way, yes. Okay. Is that what you found in, for example, uh, Tobias Crisp? No. Crisp believed that believers were supposed to conduct themselves in a moral way and that they were to be sanctified. And But did he believe in the abiding validity of the moral law for the Christian? In a nuanced way, yes. I think that there were some complications in terms of his view where he was a unique individual, to say the least, so he doesn't (laughs) kind of fit standard categories. You're saying that there were mid to late 17th century English Reformed theologians who are idiosyncratic? Yes, imagine that. Imagine that. (laughs) Shocking. Yeah. For example, on Crisp, you know, one of the the issues is that he's accused of saying that believers are justified from eternity, and he never argued that. So why is everyone so sure that A, Crisp is an antinomian, and B, he Mm -hmm. believed in eternal justification and therefore must have been an antinomian? Perhaps it's because he is writing in a time when expressions are still being refined. So maybe if you were to challenge him you know, later on, he would refine certain expressions. Secondly, it was peculiar, uh, but he said that, no, a believer is not justified until he takes his first breath. So it's not an eternity past, but it is before the person believes. So there's a nuance there that's not necessarily common. 
or an idiosyncrasy. Right, yeah, or an idiosyncrasy. And then I think another factor is that he was accused of antinomianism, and uh, sometimes in that day, merely the accusation alone could end up painting you into that camp. Well, not just that day. I mean, sure, <laughs> there is this uh, new invention called the Internet, yeah. and anybody can get on there and say anything and call you an antinomian, and bang, you're That's right. an antinomian, whether yeah. it's true, in fact. Right. And in particular, if you find that, say, somebody like Baxter, who believes that believers' works are necessary for your justification, and then you have Crisp saying, no, your good works are not in any way necessary for your justification, well, from Baxter's vantage point, of course you're going to be an antinomian. There's no other conclusion that you can come to. And then if people assume that Baxter is orthodox, which many people do on the doctrine of justification, then it must absolutely, ergo, be true that Crisp is an unqualified antinomian of the worst sort. But from the point of view of Scripture, as understood by the Reformed churches mm-hmm. and confessed in the Westminster Confession, chapter 11, for example, or Heidelberg Catechism, question 60, mm-hmm. if memory serves, Westminster 11 says, not for anything wrought in us or done by us, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which would seem to exclude Baxter mm-hmm. categorically on justification. And then, of course, there's volume 5, Mm-hmm. of John Owen's works, yeah. which is an extensive refutation yeah, absolutely. of Baxter's doctrine of justification. So it's not the case that even in his own time, he right. was accepted as an orthodox guy on justification. Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, that's one of the frustrating features of period is that they don't name names frequently. Sometimes they do. So that, like you said, John Owen's volume five on his treatise on justification is an extended refutation specifically of Baxter without hardly ever mentioning Baxter. And there were a number of Westminster divines sitting at the assembly that wrote against Baxter. And in particular, I think a lot of people don't realize that doctrine that Baxter wrote the most on was the doctrine of justification. And interestingly enough, those are the works that you do not find reprinted by Banner of Truth or by other Puritan reprint companies because he's dodgy on the doctrine, to say the least. Okay, so in the modern period, we have something of a uh, truncated view Mm -hmm. of Baxter. Mm -hmm. And not to say that's intentional, necessarily. It's just the way things worked out over time. Mm -hmm. Okay, one last thing. Okay. There came into our hands recently a fairly well-known theological journal that contains an article mm-hmm. in it that's very relevant to our discussion. Mm-hmm. And that article argues from the case of uh, John Flavel, mm-hmm. or Flavel, <laughs> something about the priority of union with Christ mm-hmm. relative to to the doctrine of justification. Mm-hmm. What's that about, and how does that affect, if it does— Mm-hmm. The discussion that we've had here today about your volume, Beyond Calvin, Union with Christ and Justification in Early Modern Reformed Theology, 1517 sure. to 1700, available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's a good question in that one of the things I discuss in the book is the idea of wig history, W-H-I-G, Whig history. What is Whig history? Thank you. I I, I wanted you to go there. (laughs) Whig history is the idea that was coined by a scholar in the 19th century by the name of Herbert Butterfield. Butterfield explains that Whig history always looks at history in terms of an evolutionary development of one idea to the next, so that present-day scholars are always trying to explain their own views in terms of their connection to 
older ideas and that these older ideas anticipate their own views. So, for example, with Karl Barth, Karl Barth appeals to Calvin as saying, Calvin was basically saying the same thing that I am saying here and that I'm just a Calvin for contemporary consumption. And so I think in this particular essay, you do find some Whig history, and it's most evident, and you can spot it fairly quickly whenever you see this hopscotching going on. And what I mean by hopscotching is they say, Calvin says this, now let's hop 450 years or so. Uh, I'm horrible at math. So we're going to hop four centuries, four and a half centuries to present day to show that this is what I'm saying, or I'm saying the same thing, disregarding the previous four centuries of development, discussion, and doctrine. And in one sense, because in the Reformed tradition, we are connected to the past and we're connected to the 16th century and earlier to the early church and that we profess to believe in this historic Christian faith and especially as it's been confessed in the various Reformed confessions and catechisms. But on the other hand, I say that whenever we look down the long well of history and we find a perfect reflection of ourselves, we should be dubious uh, as to whether or not we're actually looking into the well properly. So that with this essay, again, you find the author saying... Flavel or Flavel, don't know. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. I, I don't know. You find him saying, well, Flavel says this about union with Christ. Notice how he's echoing Calvin, as if Calvin were the only theologian talking about it. Never mind the fact that I want to say, could it be that he's echoing Luther? Because Luther says the same kinds of things. But he's echoing Calvin, and here's Flavel, and now let's hopscotch to the 21st century, and here's exactly what's being discussed by one group of participants in this debate. And I want to say that one of the things I noticed is that the author, who did some pretty good work and some excavation work in terms of looking at Flavel's work, but he leaves out a key work that Flavel wrote in the context of that antinomian controversy in the late 17th century called Planologia. And in that work— Which you discuss in your book. Yeah, which is discussed in the book. And in that work, Flavel talks about the decree to justify the elect and in terms of the elect's union with Christ being based upon the imputed righteousness of Christ. So in other words, he looks at an isolated portion of Flavel's work— doesn't pay attention to other elements, such as the Pactum Salutis that Flavel addresses, and then based upon this narrow reading of Flavel, then makes historical conclusions and dogmatic conclusions to say how this is promoting my view. And so, you know, one of the things that Quentin Skinner, a well-known historian who wrote that seminal essay on the proper methodology for historiography, is that any time that you read history, you want to do so contextually. You want to establish what's going on in the period. How would the original audience have understood it? What other documents were being written during the period? How was it being interacted with? And so just to cherry-pick the idea and rip these ideas out of the 17th century and say that these are the same ideas that are being discussed post-Enlightenment. Well, long story short, that's Whig history. Just to come back out of the weeds for a moment, for the mm -hmm. sake of the listener, mm -hmm. remind us once more of the value, mm -hmm. A, of this doctrine of mystical or existential union with Christ, mm -hmm. the spiritual benefit of it, mm -hmm. and the benefit of getting it right. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you know you think you see in the Reformed tradition is that, yes, we teach the doctrine of union with Christ, and union with Christ is vital. And there's a sense in which we can say that we have no hope apart from our union with Christ. But on the other hand, that's not enough. We need to say more. What do we mean by union with Christ? One of the examples that I use in the book is that 
everybody affirms the forest, but not everybody agrees on the trees, what kind of trees and how many trees, and that literally the devil's in the details. So that when we talk about that we are justified by faith alone, by God's grace alone, in Christ alone, and we receive the imputed active and passive obedience of Christ in our justification, and that this imputation was decreed in the pactum as the basis for our redemption because Christ as covenant surety undertakes the work of the covenant of grace to redeem the elect so that in time we are then redeemed and we are united mystically to Christ. That, I think, is salve for the soul. That is a hope in the midst of doubt and the burdens of guilt and the shame of sin. Those are things that sing, you know, redemption to the soul so that we can be assured that there is nothing that can undo our union with Christ because of what Christ has done for us in uh, the doctrine of justification. And because, as a number of Reformed theologians say, that justification is the foundation upon which we build our sanctification. It's the context in which we build it. So that the way that I like to summarize it very simply is to say that we are not saved because of Christ's work in us, but rather because of Christ's work for us. And we can rest assured that his work in us will be brought to the conclusion because he's both the author and finisher of our faith. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.